In this segment, we'll experiment with the boundaries of storytelling, featuring some of our friends, mentors, and advisors. We'll share perspectives and reframe the narratives that fall on a spectrum. We'll have unfiltered conversations around life, business, and everything in between. Between the vantage point of a deep thinker and an atomic player. Between an objective mind and a subjective heart. Between the truth teller and the truth seeker. Between two sides of the coin. Hello, everyone. We have Yusuf Khan, who is a reputable CIO and a venture partner of Rich VC. He has an illustrious career in Silicon Valley, having worked with Automation Anywhere, MoveWorks, Pure Storage, and Qualys as well. Today, we have with him in our second season of Sassita podcast to discuss about business and everything in between as well. Yusuf, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very, very much for, for having me. I really appreciate that. I know you had like about 15 other people you really wanted, but making it to number 16 on the list is great. And so I'm really appreciate. I know they, they couldn't make it, but I'm, I'm very honored in any case. So thank you. In all seriousness, I appreciate the opportunity and uh, looking forward to the conversation and happy to, to share my thoughts on, in the industry. Thank you, Yusuf. So uh, I think Sandy has been very kind to make the warm introductions as well. So big shout out to her. And I uh, just want to know a little bit about your unconventional career as well. Like how did you actually land up being a partner in Ridge VC with all your CIO background as well? I think the, probably the easiest uh, way to explain that uh, has been a, a large summary of my career is uh, there's no plan. Uh, so ultimately, I've always tried to basically approach things where if I have deep interest in an area, and then, uh, you know, deep passion for, you know, uh, both being intellectually curious, but also being able to drive good work and, and learn uh, has been kind of the, the centerpiece of how I thought about my career. But venture is one of those where I always tried to basically move into all three of those and achieve all three of those, actually. So 20 years ago, I started, a, started joined a startup during a summer job um, when they just moved into new offices. And I, you know, it was a startup uh, in the late 90s. And they just received uh, VC funding. I'd never heard about VC funding. I didn't know, barely knew about what startups were. But I was just fascinated by this concept that ultimately uh, the internet was kind of changing the world, number one. And number two, a lot of these companies and a lot of ideas were disrupting industry. And the accelerator, one of the accelerators for the industry was venture capital funding in the industry. And so that kind of got my interest. And I really was very fascinated by it. So over time, uh, I was kind of aspired, hopefully, to try and be in venture. It was more, very much more of a dream, like maybe it'll happen, maybe, maybe we'll never know, et cetera. We'll, we'll see how that basically comes about. But I knew that I really liked working in technology. And over the course of the last, say, two decades, I took a lot of operator, operational-based roles, which then led me into having a number of uh, chief information officer roles at companies like Qualys and Chill Storage, and then MoveWorks, and then lastly, Automation Anywhere. In all of those, I was deeply involved with startup, uh, either advising them, giving them guidance and feedback or listening. And uh, similarly, a lot of venture VC firms were reaching out to me for guidance and feedback as well, because it was, I was either an early customer or I was an advisor to a company. In some cases, I would share my thoughts about the industry. Um, and as I got more embedded within the community, very uh, honored to have met Alex Rosen, who's a managing partner at Ridge and the rest of the Ridge team a few years ago. That permeated in a relationship where I was part of the CIO council, and which is one of the best in the industry, which is really gave me a vantage point of kind of the CIOs interacting with VCs. And that was really the opportunity for me to get to know Ridge over, over the course of several years. And then uh, eventually I decided after 
being a CIO over five roles and having been involved in a number of interesting companies, I really wanted to spend my time looking uh, for investing in the next generation of software, which is what we focus on. And the second piece was just working with early stage founders, and I really enjoyed that. So, you know, the journey has been long. It has definitely has not been uh, the line of progress has not drawn straight uh, ever. And so, uh, but you eventually you you discover that if you're passionate about something, the success follows. And I was very passionate about working with early stage companies. I was very passionate about technology, very passionate about business and strategy and being able to uh, look at companies and see them grow and, and be play a part of that. And I thought no better role than being a, a VC than to really be involved in that at a very active level and haven't looked back. So yeah, I joined Ridge last year. It's been a, just an absolute whirlwind. It's been a, a great culture and a great team to work with. We focus on late seed Series A investing B2B software companies and um, I have an absolute ball. What a trajectory, I must say. And uh, as they always say, in the hindsight, all the dots get connected, right? So while you were actually navigating from the CIO ecosystem to the venture funding ecosystem as well, uh, did you make any angel investments as well? I mean, while you were mentoring a bunch of startups and founders? Well, uh, no, I, I didn't actually. I wasn't actually actively involved from an investing standpoint. To a certain extent, a large part of my contribution was really just more advice and guidance and feedback. So every Saturday and Sunday morning, when I could kind of make time, if you were a founder trying to basically either build a company or if you're an exec thinking about you know joining a company otherwise, I would happily meet you uh, in downtown Los Altos uh, over coffee and, and give you feedback guidance. I thought that would just be you know maybe one meeting, but it actually was kind of nearly every weekend for the last five, six years. And that kind of helped me give a vantage point. So a large part of my contribution for what it's worth has really been uh, a lot of advice. The very few companies I became an advisor to, com companies like Zoom, for example, and Productive, Material Security, uh, miss systems and others. But in, in most cases, it was really just feedback and guidance. I think, you know, my philosophy is that company building is, is very hard. It actually takes a tremendous amount of effort to be able to take an idea, build a product, build a company around it, and then take it to market and make sure that it is a you know sustainable business. And if I could give you some guidance to how to do that or some guardrails, I will happily do so without uh, any economic incentive in mind. To be honest with you, I don't think many people, uh, I think, asked for it because I think I was d just working with a lot of people who are still thinking and forming a company. So uh, that was a large part of it. But I was uh, very honored to be an advisor to several companies, which was uh, kind of how I got involved. Absolutely. I think you even mentioned about Zoom. What's the story behind it? That would be an amazing uh, journey for sure. Yeah, well, you know, it's a, it's an amazing company, amazing founder, amazing team. So yeah, I was an early customer of the company uh, in 2015. And, you know, Eric was exceptionally kind and generous to ask me to join the, the advisory board for the company and uh, was just involved over several years, giving them advice, uh, hopefully good advice over years, everything from product feedback to think about customer strategy. I was part of the customer advisory board as well. And it was, uh, of course, just a really honored to be part of that journey uh, in my very small way. But yeah, I mean, because of my kind of experience in the as a technology leader in a number of companies, I've been deploying out collaboration technology across a number of businesses. Um, so I've, I had a lot of experience in lots of video conferencing software uh, and devices. And so I knew about the industry. And so when I joined Pure Storage, one of the first decisions I made uh, was to be able to make sure that we have a, a single a collaboration system and conferencing system with Zoom. And so we deployed that out. And that's how uh, I was very lucky to have met Eric. And of course, everybody knows the story now of, of Zoom and how ubiquitous it is in, in, in the world. So 
so yeah it's been great to, to see that and i think for the listeners uh, we are actually recording on zoom so that's a good full circle here well that's good if, if you weren't it would be very awkward uh and i'd probably want you to cut it uh so that's good so i'm very grateful for that piece as well so thank you so Yusuf, one of the hardest things i face personally uh, and a little bit context here is uh, i run something called plan b capital which is an india based micro fund uh based on our alumni uh, with pilan uh, with my partner silas uh, who's based out of india and one of the hardest things you do uh, even if you're part of an angel in investing community or a micro fund or a you know venture fund the real core of you know what you're doing is making a decision when you don't have data right in early stage investing as being a partner of richvc how how do you guys think about making that decision at a very early stage of a company when you're deploying massive uh, capital into companies uh, can you talk a little bit of the process that you're approaching both as personally and how your how richvc itself is approaching that decision making yeah so i think you know we typically invest in kind of the later seed kind of series a round and i think as a result of that you tend to have a few more data points than you know what you would have at say pre-seed which is ultimately a powerpoint deck um or an mvp uh or a, a demo of a, of a product so as a result by default you probably have a, a few more data points and so from that standpoint when you when you think about investing you're looking at a number of different factors that go into place for us you know it is quite broad you know we think about the overarching market that that company is looking to operate in it's not just that it may be competitive but is it a compelling product that is going to basically disrupt the market right and i think is it going to really win hearts and minds of customers for them to be able to buy and so that requires you to be able to do quite a bit of diligence to to get to that conclusion uh, the second point is really about the team and if you think about you know early stage companies everyone's kind of doing everything um and so you actually need to get to a stage of actually understanding well what is each member of the team uh, really really good at what are the gaps how can they fill those and what order do they fill them in and i think the other piece is well, how how does this team operate collectively you know have they worked together have they you know how do they interact these sort of things start to sort of come into mind and you've got to really make an assessment of, of that as well i think the other piece is you actually have to really think about uh the overarching product and industry i i come in from that vantage point so having been a cio over several companies have been Uh, advised number of companies have bought software built software deployed it integrated it, architected it i come in from a buyer vantage point as well in a number of cases and that's just a natural uh kind of inclination for me is to say will cios buy this product would i buy this product if i was still a cio and if so and if there are things that are missing in this product you know how quickly or how difficult it is to be able to complete those right and so there's a number of factors that typically go in that go into it from that vantage point I think ultimately you also have to ask the question about you know do you see this as a longer term investment opportunity you know do we do you look at it from that that's actually it's not as big a piece as actually the the bigger piece is do you see something forming that could be created that people will buy and ultimately as a result of that is there going to be a company that's going to be formed uh, on the back of it um so I think that's important I'm you know it's important to sort of point out let's I talked to a little you to ask me a little bit about my advisory roles and I want to just you know give you some context there as well so if you think about some of the companies that uh, you know I've been involved in material security is one of those uh, which looked at zero trust for email that was really about the approach about what was happening when it comes to security in email and the reality that cyber attacks are targeting email as a content store and that there's 
uh, a high likability that um, high probability, sorry, that they may be breached. If that is breached, how do you basically prevent from data basically leaking? Now, that's at the time when I first met the company, you know, they were able, they were doing a number of different things, which was really about understanding what's happening in a customer's email environment. And then they were able to basically say, well, there's a number of actions that we need to take to be able to build a collective product, right? And so at that time, you didn't really see products that did that really, really well. And so you assessed the fact that you had a phenomenal team uh, that had been put together who actually understood the market and were able to build great products. And they're able to sort of take it from that level. If you look at companies like Miss Systems, you know, as an advisor there, you know, that team came out of Cisco, uh, Sujay Ajella and, and Bob Friday. They understood, you know, both uh, wireless and great networking. And so uh, ultimately were able to understand the industry, a great team, a great product, understood where the industry was going and built a product around from that standpoint. So those have been super interesting. And, and the same thing applies for some of our investments. So, you know, one of my first investments was in a company called Rewind, which was in the cloud backup space. Now, if you think about it, well, hey, you know, is that a space where, uh, is it crowded? Probably is, lots of backup approaches. But uh, Mike Potter and James had, had built this great solution, which was built initially for Shopify merchants to be able to back up their data and to be able to effectively provide the, press the rewind button so you can bring back your instance. But they thought about that across a number of SaaS platforms. And so then the company developed you know, products for, for GitHub and for Trello and to be able to serve those customers as well, QuickBooks Online. So, you know, you can see that there's basically been a, a nice trajectory, both in the product value proposition. Lastly, Lightyear is a company that, uh, we, you know, we invested in earlier this year. And that came in from my vantage point as a CIO, where I basically understood that network procurement of business internet has been archaic, manual and cumbersome and, and very time expensive over the course. It takes several months to be able to, to actually set up your offices. And they're not the data points there, to your point, when you look at early stage, say, how, you know, what is the customer experience like? The customer experience is awful. It's terrible. And I, I know because I lived and breathed that. And so as a result of that, I, when Dennis and Ryan uh, talked about what they were building, it resonated with me from a customer vantage point. And then we started digging deeper, actually understanding the company and the founders and the team and kind of what they were building. And all of that started to come together. So those are some of the data points that I would, I would basically speak to. And how does the decision-making happen in terms of uh, Rich VC internally? Are you guys have full free hand in terms of leading a deal or uh, do you have a semi-democratic approach in terms of how do you make one deal versus another? Yeah, so you know, we t- we'll typically invest check size of between kind of two and six million. And you know, we'll do that the late seed in Series A, as I said earlier. In some cases, we will lead the investment. In some cases, we will co-lead. Uh, alongside another VC firm. And in some cases, you know, we'll, we'll contribute. And our objective really is like, we should be able to add value. Uh, you know, the company that we are investing in sees that Ridge can basically add value. We have a great CIO council. We actually understand product narrative really well in the enterprise. We can aid on go-to-market. A number of these things sort of come to mind. So part of this is not just about being able to invest. It's also about truly partnering with a firm, with a, with a company and actually help that company go to the next level. And if we can contribute to that, you know, as I go back earlier, part of my story is that's why I went into venture to be able to see uh, ideas um, at a, at a, at lithium incubation stage and even at a concept stage. And next thing you know, you're like, well, there's like, you know, several hundred people productive is that example. You know, I was an advisor to productive and we became a investor uh, later on. So, 
again, that was a, a space in SaaS management I had experience in as a CIO. Ashish and Manish and, and Jody were looking to basically form a company around it, came up with a great idea. They built a great track record collectively as a team. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the story there is like, it was like four of us sitting in a coffee, having morning coffee. And then three years later, it's, you know, 100 plus people uh, and a company worth a couple hundred million. And that journey for me is kind of why I've been super excited about venture. Tons of reasons for for being part of that. But from a personal standpoint, that's where that's where we come in. As far as decision-making concerned, we're a team of, of great people at Rich. We have complementary skills and experience. Uh, we think very broadly about the industry. We're rigorously focused in terms of what we invest in. Uh, we, and we're very proud of that. And we want to be able to make sure that we can do well there. And as a result of that, there's just a, a collaborative approach in terms of how you get to the, making those decisions. And so, and that's one of the major reasons I joined the firm against other firms that I was considering. So you have a good vantage point and a sort of a unique vantage point being a CIO and you can really see what are the B2B product problems and adoptions, you know, within the companies that you have access to. Uh, when you decided to actually, you know, become a partner, uh, we're seeing this a growing trend of operator investors, right, uh, who are not attached to a specific VC firm, you know, who are sort of solo capitalists, they have their own fund or uh, part-time funds, or they have their own syndicates, you know, which are now huge and could do a, you know, almost lead a seed round if possible, or a pre-seed round. Have you thought about those uh, scenarios before, you know, joining Rich VC or uh, what attracted to, you know, a fund model versus, you know, being a solo capitalist? So I probably wouldn't be really good as a solo capitalist. I, I don't think I, I just know I, I've got enough self-awareness to know what I'm good at, what I'm not good at. So, uh, you know, as it is, one of the reasons that I, I never went into venture until uh, only last year was just pure like, okay, where do I add value? How can I add value? And yeah, I think I can do that by being able to provide guidance and be kind of voice of the customer. But, um, you know, running a fund and an operation, it, it requires quite a bit of work to be done. And, and I think um, I really applaud uh, sort of GPs as a, many of them are, are good friends of mine. I know what I'm good at and where I can basically execute well. And I wanted to make sure that I, I, I'm just, I work much better with a team of people, number one. Number two, I think the, the other part was, it's just, part of it's been relationships. That Part of it's just been relationships over time. So as you get to know the team, um, I was like, I really want to work with this team. This, this is, you know, it's just a great opportunity and a great culture. Uh, we take pride in the fact that we have a great culture and a great set of people that we work with. And so I tend to work better from that vantage point. And look, I think the other piece is I'd got to know the firm over several years. You know, I think venture is one of those where you want to be able to make sure that you spend time with people that you respect, that hopefully respect you. I think they do, you know, that you want to make sure that you can add value from a, a skills perspective and knowledge perspective. And I like being part of that environment. And so no criticism of solo GPs. I think it, if anything, it demonstrates that they've built a phenomenal track record in their own way and that investors are happy to basically give them money to invest as a solo GP. Many of them are both good friends and I admire them a lot. I just, I, I'm not brave enough to do it. That's probably the easiest way I would say. So sort of extending the conversation into the different stages of investments you have to, right? Uh, you mentioned you're doing from C plus to Series A. And like last one or two years, we've seen this exceptional rise in valuations. You know, what previously used to be seed valuation is now Series A and, you know, everything is sort of 10 x in last uh, two to three years in terms of valuation. How do you guys uh, internally are thinking about doing the seed plus, you know, uh, in this last one year in terms of just pure valuation sense? Are you uh, cautiously investing 
knowing that these are going to be high valuations and there's no comeback or you have like a hard restriction that, hey, we'll only do at a certain valuation gap? Well, look, I think one of the challenges with valuation, so basically, I think the industry has moved just really quickly, far more quickly than most people would have either guessed over the course of last two years, right? And so that's not normal. I mean, there's been record fundraising levels over the course of the last uh, three to four months. And I think there's a very good set of reasons for that. Reason number one is uh, people woke up to the fact that software is not just eating the world, it's actually driving the world and it's driving businesses. And so as a result of that, more businesses are buying software than they've ever done before. With that in mind, as a result, you're probably going to see a lot more software businesses being created and, and, and you saw that. And of course, there was ones that had basically been built over time. They were growing steadily and then they saw an accelerated growth over the course of the last few years. I mean, you saw that in the restaurant sector, for example. There's a very good reason that Toast had a very good IPO. Uh, that company, if anybody looks uh, deeper into that company's journey, you'll see it's definitely, uh, you wouldn't have expected it in some cases. But guess what? You know, they were, they were from a timing perspective in terms of product value proposition, they've done super well and, and good luck to them. And that's fantastic. So the other thing that's happened is I think ultimately a lot of investors have understood that you know, because of the nature of technology being so ubiquitous and being spread across so many businesses that actually investors who didn't look at venture in the past have now decided that they want to invest in venture funds, which is why you've seen so many funds, uh, either new funds being created or existing funds raising uh, lots of funds as well. And so I think as a result of that, you tend to basically have much more capital being deployed. And then there's a scarcity issue. You know, then you have to basically find founders that you want to invest in. It becomes competitive. And, you know, the market basically tells you that those valuations will start to increase in some cases. It's not as simple as that. That's just kind of my one vantage point to look at it. Ultimately, the way to think about this is, you know, company building takes a tremendous amount of time. Uh, it will be over, over a longer term. A lot of companies went public over the last couple of years, but they've been around for over 10 plus years. I mean, most people did, didn't realize that, you know, hey, by the way, it just went public. It was probably a really good brand, but you kind of look back like, oh my God, that company started 17 years ago. It went public now. So there was, and as a result of those companies going public, you actually had uh, the opportunity for a number of other companies that were being created adjacent to those uh, to basically start to get not just great attention, but also get great customer traction, get demand. So as an investor, um, the round labeling has basically been, you know, it's been interesting to see, right? I mean, the, the rounds have become bigger at the earlier stage, a lot of funds are going in earlier. So I think I, I would probably say I don't, I'm trying to, uh, patterns is something I have to question uh, from time to time, uh, because, you know, if the last couple of years have shown you anything, you start to see some very, very interesting scenarios. I think that the thing that I caution against more than anything else is, and this is important for anyone who's kind of doing investing, is you have to do the work in terms of diligence to make sure that you actually make it, you have a fiduciary duty to your investors and you have to do the work accordingly. And I think it's very important to be able to spend time actually understanding that from that standpoint. You know, from my standpoint, I provide a vantage point, which is will CIOs buy this product? Will CISOs buy this product? And I can use my network to be able to get uh, some of those data points and contribute to that to our thinking. And But then you have to basically think in, in a much vantage point, like, is it really competitive? Is it compelling? Will people switch away from products otherwise? If I come back to your question about, about valuations, that there's something to be said about, well, hey, it is a product. It is a great company. Uh, it is a great set of founders. But will they be successful against, you know, 
the larger the larger players in that market. And that's what ultimately people are 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 making the investment on to say in the longer term, software industries will be disrupted over a course of several years. Maybe the cycle start to shrink over time, and therefore there will be probably a bunch of outliers that that come on the back of that. So yeah, it's probably not the most sensible answer, but it's just an opinion that at least I have. So yeah, uh, I think there's also a couple more factors like the public markets are so you know fully valued at this point. It also gives incentives to investors who are fully invested in public markets to look for other avenues. And even though high-priced private rounds uh, are higher than ever, it still makes sense uh, in terms of, uh, you know, if you look at hitting a unicorn at pre-series A, uh, it still makes sense for those investors to actually, you know, go and find those uh, pre-series A investments because the outcome potentially is much, much, much higher. And they're anyways invested in public markets already. So that's uh, one of the opinions uh, that I have. But uh, moving on to the next topic I, I thought uh, would be interesting to get your uh, opinion on is what are the next, I'm myself an engineer working in Azure hybrid products, and I'm, I'm personally curious to know what are the uh, next trends uh, of cloud products that you're looking at or you're trying to find per se, you know, uh, like, you know, Bill Gurley famously was, you know, finding the Uber you know, he invested in like two more companies like Uber, you know, before actually investing in Uber. Do you have like specific ideas or trends that you are following and actively trying and, you know, scouting the internet for the founders working on that specific problem? Yeah, well, so for me, one of the, there's a couple of key trends that I think, are, at least that, that I've assessed. Number one is uh, software is actually enabling global innovation. So it's not just happening uh, in Silicon Valley, it's actually happening across the world and probably much more, number one, in terms of quantity, but also in terms of just velocity as well. So you're starting to see, uh, you know, just a ton of great companies coming out of pretty much every part of the world, Asia, Middle East, as well as Europe and Latin America. So I'm starting to see companies coming from pretty much all geographies. And I think that's super exciting and actually to basically see. I think that's, so that's definitive from my standpoint is like, Ultimately, you're going to see a number of kind of great companies being created. And some, in some cases, they're serving their, their specific markets, which is absolutely fine. I mean, it demonstrates how much technology needs to address uh, particular geographies. That's one piece. I think the second piece is I'm very focused on looking at, at, at companies which are impacting either corporate functions, which have not been addressed. And I come from that bias of like having been a CIO and worked in companies, I can clearly see that there's just a lot of Excel sheets being flying around and you're asking, and I call it Excel hell. Like, why, why would you do that? Surely there should be a, a workflow. It should be software centric. There should be a product that, that's putting in place. We should moving away from email and actually moving into much more collaborative system. So I see that and that will continue both in enterprises and then in SMB and small businesses. So you start to basically see that. The other piece is actually specific verticals and, and industries. And so that's the thing that, that really uh, I get very interested in. I've spent several years in the construction industry. I spent several years in, you know, in higher education, for example, uh, and then, of course, uh, in, in tech as well. And so I've definitively seen that from an innovation standpoint, those industries have not been disrupted as fast as possible. The opportunity is now. And the reason is that actually the cloud compute power is now available. The data sets are actually now available. Candidly speaking, there's more imagination about how to basically fix some of these issues. You know, some of the best companies have been created on the back of uh, people realizing they want to solve problems for themselves, right? And so I get very interested when I look at companies in specific verticals who 
have ultimately understood the problem really, really well because of their operator expertise or have, they've done a tremendous amount of research and they want to basically uplift uh, a particular uh, part of that industry. And that's super exciting. I think the other piece on, on the cloud piece is, look, there's more transformation uh, and there's more workloads that are going to the cloud than ever before. The cloud platforms have ultimately uh, given the opportunity for products to be created a lot faster and, and distributed as well. In addition to that, they've also provided services, everything from transcription to you know robotic vision to, of course, AI. And as a result of that, that allows for a whole bunch of products that's being created, not just by startups, but also by larger companies, right? And so that in itself is, is something that's interesting. But what's more interesting is that this trend of moving to the cloud, moving your data, doing AI, requires an overlying infrastructure to manage it. And that's the piece that I, I look at. So if you think about ML infrastructure, if you think about the, you know, as more AI projects start to basically come into deployment production, you know, thinking about how that infrastructure is put together and managed and how you support some of those is kind of important. We, we thought about, and the same thing existed for security. You know, when I was CIO of Qualys, vulnerability management definitively was uh, one of the issues in the industry. If you were uh, in the security operations and in the application security world, you'd be wanting to be able to make sure you, you're able to assess your vulnerabilities and then be able to actually prioritize and fix them. That's just one part of a security operation. There's a whole different facets of security operation which require tooling and you want to make sure that you're able to address them from tools. Some were addressed, for example, uh, with say Splunk and log management and in others that weren't. So we're an investor, for example, in a company called Rappe Systems. And Rappe Systems is a Kubernetes operations uh, platform and the reason that they've done super well and they've got enterprise customers is as cloud transformations have happened, most people have moved to understanding that Kubernetes is the path to doing that. But it's very, very hard to manage. And most companies and most people didn't realize that until later on. They were like, well, we're just going to do work in, in, you know, have a microservices strategy and Kubernetes is going to be a key part of it. And then you're like, well, what are the 40 different things that we've now woken up to that we need to basically manage Kubernetes, everything from security and encryption to privilege access management to, to imaging. And all of that needs to be done. And Rafe basically provides uh, the ability to be able to do that, right? And so again, you don't tend to base, that's not an obvious piece, but you start to understand that the managing technology or the business of managing technology is in itself requires, it needs to be addressed. And so it's a real opportunity for companies to be able to address that need by building great products. Excellent. I'm just curious when you were mentioning about many of the companies that are sprouting in different parts of the world, especially uh, we are currently living in the golden era of SaaS as well. A lot of companies that are coming from Southeast Asia or even from Africa or even from uh, other parts of Eastern Europe as well, they are going after global markets. They are having an advisory board and, and you know, surrounding by the set of people from all parts of the world and finally going for the public markets as well. So uh, my question is that, I mean, you as well as Rich VC, is it uh, focusing or leaning towards a little bit US-centric investments? Or do you have, uh, if there is a company that is coming in any part of the world, maybe Indonesia, are you very open for uh, looking into that through an investment lens as well? Yeah, we, uh, we think of it from a global vantage point, no question at all. And so for me, that's pretty definitive, right? I mean, yes, of course, a large majority has been in the US. We understand that. But uh, we also know that now there's just innovation across geographies, across time zones. So yeah, I've, I've talked to companies, everyone ranging from Southeast Asia to Latin America to the Middle East. 
quite wide. And I'm very excited about doing that. Look, I, I grew up all over the world in some cases. You know, I was born in Pakistan. I grew up in Egypt and lived in Kenya, lived in the UK, you know, traveled all across Europe, et cetera, have operations, you know, in, from Shanghai to, to Dubai, et cetera. So um, as a result of that, um, I always had a, a kind of a global vantage point and having talked to companies and founders from, from those geographies, no question at all. That's really exciting to know because um, a lot of predictions are coming that in the frontier markets, there's a lot of opportunity as well in 2021 and beyond. So many people are really gung-ho about the frontier markets as we speak. So I'm very curious of, on an op-ed that you uh, you know gave in uh, Tech TechCrunch about SaaS pricing investments. And uh, I mean, uh, let's talk a little bit uh, onto it. I mean, is it like, uh, do you see things from a very CIO standpoint where you are very open for companies like Eight Tables and Mondays uh, reaching out for enterprise customers and you have a viewpoint on that? Or are you also very um, excited about the new pricing trends that are coming in the SaaS, uh, you know, uprising companies as well? Yeah, look, you know, I, I give, I publish a, a shameless, you know, kind of plug for a, a blog post that I, I publish. It's called Vestside Stories. And the reason for that is because I've just met with thousands of founders over several years. I've learned from them, listened to a lot of them. I've given them advice. Some of it, hopefully most of it's been good. I hope some of them have taken it. Some of them have ignored it. That's totally fine. But if you ask me a question, I'm happy to answer it. So I went ahead and started to basically publish a large part of this advice, everything from how you build good leadership teams to how you think about pricing. So from a pricing perspective, all of these topics that I come from, I come from vantage point of having been a customer or having been an advisor, or just literally a listener and kind of an observer of a lot of those. In pricing specifically, um, I think at an early stage anyway, I think you're spending far too much time overthinking this. And it, it, it kind of drives me absolutely nuts in some cases, because time is probably the most important asset that you have, and you want to make sure that you manage it accordingly. And so if you think about your product, you, my argument there is very simple. Ultimately, you have to rethink pricing every few years anyway because your business model will probably evolve. Uh, the customer sentiment changes all the time. At the early stages, you should be simplifying as much as possible, which ultimately the objective when you are an early stage company is you want to acquire great customers. Uh, you don't want to basically, you know, just think about it. If you're basically speaking to a, a CIO for 45 minutes or even 30 minutes, do you really want to spend five minutes trying to explain your pricing? Or do you want to say, hey, this is what we're proposing. We think we'd be a, you'd be a great customer. I think you'd really get value from this. This is how much value that we'd attach to it. I mean, having a simpler negotiation up front is much easier than saying, well, you know, we'd like to go into this direction and it's based on this metric and this usage, whatever. At the early stage, I just, I think you have to oversimplify uh, because ultimately the objective is you're trying to get early customers. You want to make sure they're referenceable. You want to make sure they're successful. And number four, you know, you can make sure that ultimately you're going to go for the longer term. And that basically means you need to spend time negotiating and getting things in place, but don't spend too much time on it. Understand a procurement process and then execute towards that process, acquire the customers, and then you should figure out what renewal year two, year three looks like, right? Now, the other thing to think about is your product is going to evolve over time. So if there's going to be a, a disparity between this baseline foundational product you built and then you know a huge uplift and you're not able to basically uh, attribute value to that, because a customer doesn't want to pay that much and you think it's absolutely amazing, but they're only willing to pay incremental. Like it starts to get really problematic. Like, so I've focused a lot more on kind of the early stage uh, from a pricing standpoint to be very, very focused. You know, I gave some, I talked about some tactics you can look to think about, right? Ultimately, if you think about your product, 
if you think about automation technology, just think about it from a customer vantage point. How much will it take a customer to be able to actually drive that value if they did it themselves? Well, they'd have to hire someone or they've hired a couple of people. Uh, so hiring in itself takes time. Talent acquisition these days is nuts, right? So let's that will take uh, about a month to do. Then you need to onboard someone. Then you need to actually build out a solution. Then you need to actually deploy it, right? Most of the customers of early stage companies have more resources uh, and more budget than early stage companies have ever even, the, even the funding that they've basically received, right? So it's not about, but they shouldn't be doing that. They shouldn't be building uh, their own products from that vantage point. And the harsh reality is it'll cost a lot more. So surely instead of someone spending half a million trying to do it themselves, if you went in and said, well, we'll do this for 50 to 100K and you make a substantial amount of it, that's a good win, right? And so part of the advice was very directed towards making sure you can acquire customers early. And number two is that you can actually go forward and actually deploy the product. Every time those sales cycles get extended on pricing, you're hurting yourself with the process. And so that's why I decided that, you know, the more simplified version uh, and demonstrating that value is probably a much better better strategy. Excellent. And I think um, from the CIO standpoint, uh, whenever you are in the enterprise uh, spectrum, right, I'm still assuming even in the remote era, there will be a lot of uh, virtual sales folks uh, trying to connect with the CIOs. If they were pitching to you, they will not have the opportunity to go for, uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, sit with you with a can of Dr. Pepper and talk about Philadelphia Eagles, but they might, uh, again, set up a form introductory call for 45 minutes and have a virtual meeting with you and then have these high-level CXO level discussions before actually signing a deal, maybe. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, so just a clarification, the Eagles is the band, not the, not the football team. So just to be clear, I, people do get confused about but look at me, I, I can't play football. I mean, it's, it's not good. It's not going to work out well, basically. So that's how uh, sales folks do uh, wrong research as well at times, you know, lack of data. That's totally fine, but we're still talking and we'll continue to talk. So absolutely no offense calls at all. I just thought I'd clarify it because I'm a purist. I want to make sure you get it right. So... Look, one of the funniest things that happened in the last couple of years, there's like millions of people who were working from home and they were laughing at us. They were like, uh, what is exactly the big deal here? We've been doing this for several years. I, I don't know. And there was like all of this like, oh, here's how to best to work from home, all the tactics and all the other stuff. And there's like millions of people, salespeople specifically, who are like kind of sitting there scratching their head saying, sorry, why is this a big deal? I've been doing this for years. Like I've been sitting in Florida and I've been sitting in you know, Tulsa and I've been sitting in Philadelphia, like with all due respect, I've been doing it. So it was just humorous for, 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 for some, I mean, now it was as a different scale. Now everybody's remote and everybody needs to collaborate and, and figure that piece out. So I think that that's fine. But from a sales perspective, look, I, I think that's been the case for a long while. And so I don't think, I think some of it's changed, of course, I think the biggest thing that base changes, if you were doing high-level executive sales, then that that was problematic, no question at all, right? I mean, a typical good enterprise sales motion requires you to do everything from an executive briefing, for example, you know, and be able to sort of get people together and do executive alignment. That was a very typical enterprise sales motion. Doing that remotely uh, is not as high quality in my vantage point, right? But hey, guess what? The world woke up. And it's very interesting to see the human race kind of adapt, right? So all of a sudden, uh, multi-billion dollar companies are going public all via Zoom. I mean, doing a roadshow all over Zoom. Think about that, right? Literally in getting investors in place. So we know it's here to stay definitively. But I think there's just a school of thought which says, hey, I actually prefer this. I prefer a relationship that I could establish. And I, so 
the hybrid nature of work is probably the new standard. That's totally fine. There's going to be a, a school of thought which says, yeah, we're going to go all in on office. Some people do that. And there are a whole bunch of people who are not. It's still early. There's still not certainty. There's still a lot of uncertainty about a bunch of things uh, from a medical standpoint. So there's just companies are going to start to adapt. But I think one thing I've probably realized is uh, I think people have understood that there's a working model remotely. And in some cases, it's not optimal, but they can adapt and they've executed. And so the data point for that is a whole bunch of enterprise companies survived over the course of the last couple of years. They did really well. In fact, they did more better than expected. Some people found their mojo and they're like, holy moly, I'm having more meetings. I can, you know, not even commuting. I'm executing super well. And then others were like, this is new to me. I'm like a people person. I want to sit down and meet and be able to, to build relationships. And I think some people won in that. But I think overall, you saw people just adapt and execute and perform because it was part of their livelihood. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm still very much about in-person meetings. I'd love to basically meet and, uh, and collaborate. You know, I think there's just a different nature to it. You can just have a, a different set of conversation. You don't kind of end it by the square kind of just evaporating, right? You, you know, you got to hug it out, you know, shake hands, you know, wish them well, you know, walk them to, you know, just that sort of stuff totally works well. So uh, I, I'm more in-person from my standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. Good to know. I think quite a lot of sales professionals have been telling that, you know, the whining and the dining and the steak dinners are something that they have been missing. And now it's just 2D screens, not even 3D. So it's just, you know, switch off a particular button and the meeting is over. It feels a little weird as well. Well, the thing is, it's a level set, right? So you want a square selling to me versus somebody else. And it's, you know, the, the skills are, are, are like, it's not going to be about how you're conversing and, and your table manners. It's going to be about your Zoom manners, right? It's going to be like, you know, and part of it, you think about these small things. These small things matter. You're like, well, spending like several minutes trying to get the uh, thing working. Like, hey, by the way, this guy or gal can't even get their act together on a 30-minute Zoom call. How are they going to be when I base out calling a support issue? Like, and so people getting jittery, you know, like all of a sudden, like, oh, my God, I'm 30 seconds late. I better basically join. But otherwise, hey, you know, people were late before the pandemic and they'll be late after the pandemic. Everything will be fine. Just just take a moment. All right. We're all human beings. We're, just, we're all just trying to get along. Right. Everything will be fine. Like just it'll be fine. There'll be, you know, in the venture is there'll be hundreds of companies and there'll be hundreds of founders. Everything will be fine. In enterprise sales, there'll be hundreds of customers. There'll be some good meetings and they won't back. Just take a moment. It, it'll be fine. It'll, it'll all be okay. Absolutely. And um, my last uh, concluding question to you would be, um, uh, Yusuf, uh, do you have any favorite books or some, some books or novels that have really inspired you through your years? That would be good to know. And maybe our listeners would love to know about that as well. It's a very, very good question. I wasn't prepared for it, but I, I have a very straightforward answer. First of all, I only read, uh, well, 99% of what I read is, is nonfiction, specifically you know, biographies and understanding of industry. Just a complete nerd uh, that way. I just, I don't, I mean, of course, I, I do read fiction. I'm a big movie guy. Like, I just, I love watching movies, etc. But uh, I like reading people's stories. So I tend to joke that if I wasn't a VC, I'd w want to go teach history somewhere because I, it was my favorite subject at school. And I wanted to make sure that I, I basically, so uh, I read a lot of uh, biographies, autobiographies, and then uh, a lot about history. So automotive industry has been very interesting to see over the course of several years. There's a great uh, book uh, called Once Upon a Car 
uh, by Bill Vlasic, uh, which talks about the industry and what happened during the financial crisis. And, and that was super interesting. I'm very big on uh, on leadership, specifically in the business space. So I believe a uh, book, yeah, book, uh, um, book about Adam Mulally and how he led Ford and basically transformed that that book. Uh, sporting uh, history. So, you know, for those who, who have followed cricket, you know, Imran Khan's book, uh, Autobiography, you know, All Round View, I've read that. But I also, I follow quite wide uh, stance, basically. So, yeah, I mean, political history and kind of American history, I, I, I read. And uh, so, for example, Walter Isaacson is one of my favorite authors. He, I, I think he, his book on Steve Jobs is brilliant. I think it was probably the most comprehensive kind of outline, but a great book on Leonardo da Vinci, uh, which is what I'm reading. And I think that's super uh, super fascinating. I think uh, he's been he's been fantastic. So yeah, as you can know, Ray, there's a large stack of books that have been unread, but I keep piling them on. Um, and I start reading audio books, etc. So I, I read as uh, as much as time can basically allow me. Walter Isaacson also had a good book this year itself, the, the Code Breakers. I think you know that was a super hit as well. Yes, and he read he wrote one called The Innovators, which was uh, which has been very good. So uh, being able to contrast and and compare. From different vantage points, I think has been kind of my kind of my reading go-to. I always think I look at one, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I'll I'll read another. Basically, yeah. I usually don't ask this, but you're a movie buff, it seems. So, what is the last movie you watched, or something that really uh, you know struck your chords? I watch a number of documentaries. Um, I think at, by the end of this, no one wants to speak to me. Uh, so I, I don't know whether I should, be t- I should be giving exciting answers or not, basically. I'll, no, whatever. I mean, you're a purist, right? So go for it. Uh, so I'm a big Marvel guy. I've been following Spider-Man since, you know, a young age, right? Literally every iteration. So you can kind of see Spider-Man pretty on a constant repeat in my home on a pretty regular basis. It's just, I, I can't get away from it. It's Marvel... Avengers, I quote Iron Man all the time, like just the thing, basically. So I, I can't get away from that. And then you've sort of moved full circle to write them in this documentary. So Netflix have done really well on Formula One. So I'm a big Formula One fan. So uh, the Drive to Survive uh, series has been... They also got one for uh, Michael Schumacher recently, Schumacher. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you know, kind of documentary series from that standpoint, from page watching is, uh, is super fun. And yeah, you know, I, I like... The kind of crime stuff. I, I mean, I'm a big Sopranos guy, so the new the new series that's coming into place, I'm I'm going to be watching that avidly. But as you can see, there's kind of a trend. I I like to see the story go from one to the other. So you know, if you if you look at, for example, you know, the t- Titans that built America, it's a great series on the History Channel. I mean, that that was pitch perfect for me. I, that was like popcorn, Dr Pepper, sit down Sunday afternoon. Don't no one speak to me. I I, I need to focus on on how this country was built and where the businesses were. So it's a nice collage, which doesn't have any pattern, but ultimately it, it is about learning about people's stories. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Yusuf. I think this conversation was really amazing. And, you know, we got to know about so many colors of your personality, as well as a lot of things to do with venture. There's not many colors, let's face it. I mean, it's pretty black and white, to be honest. I mean, it's right here. So, But look, thank, thank you for the opportunity. I, I really appreciate it. Legos, Yosef. Like I said, I think the key thing is this industry is becoming, it continues to be deeply interesting and transformative across the board. So I'm just really lucky to be part of it. So but thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Yosef.
Sasirak.